I feel like I'm more of a custodian than a gatekeeper. I, I think about that a lot. Some of the stories that I've been trusted to tell have been pretty dark and deep. And so it's been very heartwarming that people are willing to, to trust me with that. Welcome to Not A Real Artist, a podcast by me, Tamara Segadevan. And me, Iris Fritchie Cousins, discussing relatable creative topics with honesty and humor. It's the season of the guest where we invite people who are vastly more interesting than the two of us combined and pick their brains about their art practices and their projects. And I am super excited to talk to our guest today. Iris, would you like to introduce our guest in a very cryptic manner? Okay, I will in a very cryptic manner. You definitely didn't look at the title of this episode (laughs) in which the guest name is mentioned. Um, So this person has been on my wish list. When I started thinking like, who do I want to ask on uh, our podcast? And like I was doing my little wish list. I was like, oh, she's so interesting. And I really admire um, from a distance she doesn't know this, um, what she's doing. Um, And I really want to know more about it because to me, what she is doing in this creative space blows my mind and feels like something that I could never do, uh, both from a practical and an emotional uh, point of view. And so I really want to know more. What about you, Tamara? Well, I think our guest is just absolutely crazy. (laughs) And I mean that in the best way possible. Um, If you haven't read the title, our guest is Suzanne Early, who has a magazine called Strawberry Moon. And I have seen almost, and I stopped counting at some point, like 28 collaborators in one of the issues that I saw. And that is why I think she's crazy in the best possible way. Um, Suzanne, have you left us yet? Still here? I'm still here. Sorry for insulting you, kind of. <laughs> oh, no. I think I'm crazy, too. So. <laughs> so do you want to just introduce yourself to our listeners in your own words? Sure. I call myself a multi-passionate artist because I like to do absolutely everything. Yeah, maybe not everything, but I have been a quilter, a knitter, Um, I am really into art journaling. I love watercolor painting. I love to just try all of the things. I love to learn all the things. I am a wife and a mom. My twin boys are adults, allegedly. And I have three cats now who are my staff and they are absolutely useless. But, you know, (laughs) what do you do? And I have started a magazine called Strawberry Moon Magazine for art journalers. I have done lots of different things in my professional life as a, uh, I was a long arm quilter. I was a secretary, although I called myself a multitasking wizard because I was at a school and I was a computer network engineer for a couple of years. My very favorite job was my first one when I was a page at a library and all I did was shelf books that had been returned. So I didn't know that that's what they were called. That's quite a page in a library. Yes. (laughs) I'm super interested in the logistics of how you get this this magazine together. And of course, I've been one of the lucky people to be featured in your magazine. So I know it from the outer perspective about how to answer questions and stuff. But before we even get to that, I think the juicier thing is, why are you doing this and how? (laughs) The story kind of starts about four-ish years ago, there was a magazine focused on art journalers called Brush Magazine, and it was um, created by Tanya Lee Collar, who is in Australia. It was kind of a side thing for her. She's a full-time graphic artist, I think. And she kind of did it in conjunction with the Get Messy art community. 
And after a couple of years, she just couldn't keep going anymore. So she closed it. And it was before I ever had the chance, before I ever took the chance to submit my artwork. And so that made me kind of sad. And I don't know, this, this bug got planted that we still, as an art journaling community, needed something like a magazine. And I know that there is a magazine that you can buy in the bookstore, but it just felt like a different experience to have something that was created by art journalers and was for art journalers that was just, it just felt more relatable than maybe the one that you can pick up in the bookstore. So it's like you created the thing that you wanted to see in the world. Exactly, exactly. And so I thought about it for a couple of years. I emailed Kaylee from Get Messy and I said, what do you think? And she's like, totally, you should totally do this. (laughs) Um, It was about two years of thinking about it. And, you know, this is all as I were going through the pandemic and I was increasingly aware that I needed to leave my job at the school. Um, I'd been there for 10 years and it was just no longer good for my mental health to be there. So when I quit, my husband's like, well, what are you going to do now? And I'm like, well, I think I want to try starting a magazine. And he's like, you want to do what? And it's going to be about what? So there was a lot of conversation there. And, and he agreed that I am, I, and I recognize that I am in the very lucky position of being privileged enough to have the time to do this without having a separate job. And so that's kind of where it got started. If I can say something, you are right. It is a privilege, but I don't think you should discount the fact that it does still take a lot of effort and work because I'm privileged to also work, but I'm not as uh, driven. I could not pull together a magazine. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not trying to be beat down on myself. I just don't have that type of like high functioning brain. I also want to say that like the world is privileged that so many artists put their time into the arts without necessarily the proper remuneration. I am privileged that I can, you know, work on my Patreon and stuff like that because I bankroll it with my day job, you know? So the world is privileged that we choose to do these things despite, like, instead of pursuing a career in, I don't know, finance or law or whatever. So yeah, and I I don't mean it to sound like I'm apologizing or anything. I just, I think it's important to to say this is what I do. From the outside, I probably look busier than I am because I do, I do struggle with depression. And so I have kind of timed it so that I have some time to take mental health days. What you said now is like, you probably look busier than you are. I think that's true for a lot of us. Oh, absolutely. As well. And I totally get it. Thank you for sharing that with us because otherwise, I don't know, everybody would go around with this idea that maybe all three of us are actually much busier than we actually are. It goes back to the conversation about social media. We only put online what we choose to put online. And so you don't see the days when all I do is sit on the iPad doing the stupid crossword game or uh, cross-stitch game, you know. And I think also when you do things that are like creative and uh, require a lot of work, but also a lot of like kind of get up and go, because like it's not like um, a task that is already there to do, like, I don't know, cleaning the sink or something like it's it's already there. It's a task when you're doing something creative and you're creating something from nothing, you um you have to have the get up and go of going like, well, what do I need to do? You're kind of creating your own job for yourself. And I do find that that type of work requires a lot more mental energy. And I have had to kind of um, uh, make peace with the fact that 
sometimes I'm so busy and so effective and so kind of like uh, productive um, that I can't be like that all the time. If I was like that all the time, I would burn out. So, and then I, I kind of like, you know, the next day I'll be like, you know, oh, I'm waste, wasting all my time being not productive, not doing very much, but really it was necessary in order to have that kind of focused energy in you know, in the other moment and expecting yourself to have that sustained energy all the time is kind of unrealistic, uh, you know, given that we are human. Oh, totally. I'm currently working on laying out issue number five and I can't just sit for eight hours and do it. I have to take brain breaks. I have to walk away. I have to go pick up my knitting or whatever. My husband can sit and do the most boring jobs. He's a farmer. So he can sit in a tractor for 12 hours at a time. And it would just absolutely drive me insane. I have to take those breaks. And it is hard because then I think the next day, oh, I'm being so lazy today, but no. Exactly. Like I'm being so lazy. Oh my God. Like I do that too. And like, oh, um, I want to know a little bit more. You said that it took you about two years from kind of like the seed of the idea to actually doing something with it. What were the obstacles in those two years and also in that very first stage of starting it? Because obviously, like, I feel like that the difference between not having a magazine and then putting out your first issue, that is the most massive uh, stairway to climb. And I'm sure like every single issue is a lot of work, but the, the difference between going from one to two or two to three is still not as big as going from zero to one. So I was still working and the hurdle was thinking, yeah, this is something I could do. Because I kept thinking, well, somebody should do this. And it was like, oh, well, you know, you, you could be that somebody, but I don't know anything about magazines. I don't know anything about publishing. I don't know anything about InDesign. I don't know anything about marketing. I don't, you know, it was just all of these lists and lists. And once I decided to do it, I have this notebook that's just full of lists of things that I thought I needed to learn and to figure out. And I still haven't figured out some of them. So that was that was the main hurdle was just because I knew I didn't want to try to do it while I was working because I knew I would never be able to get it done in a way that I felt good about. And then once I was leaving my job, it was just like, who am I? It's that imposter syndrome, you know, who am I to think that this is something I could do? Because I don't have a huge following. I don't have I'm not part of some of the, I don't want to call them clicks, but there's different groups online of people that work real tight. They're tight knit and work together. I wasn't, I'm not part of any of those. And, and that's not, that's not me being like, like teenage high school, whatever. It's just no. a fact yeah. because you have to make your own small communities. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, the internet is just too big. And so going to the next step was I actually put out a survey and I, don't remember. I had over a hundred responses just to see, you know, is there some interest? And and there was. And I still decided, even if there hadn't been as much as there was, I was going to try it. Um, I figured it can't hurt. It's not like I was having to invest in a lot of product to have in my home. I could do the work because the work is all on every computer. And then I could get it printed and we'll just see where it went. So that first, that first experience was okay, I have to use InDesign. I don't know how to use InDesign. But I have long been the kind of person that if you put me in front of a computer, 
I apparently think the way that computer programmers or user experience design people work, because I can almost always figure out right away what it is that needs to be done in a program. And if I can't figure it out, I know what kind of questions to go ask Google in order to figure it out. It sounds as if you don't get intimidated by a lack in your knowledge, that it, it's a challenge to you, but not something that bowls you over and then makes you not able to engage with it or start. Right, right. I just, I want to know all the things and I, I enjoy trying to figure it out. So, and so that first time, I think the most nerve wracking thing was putting out the call for submissions and asking people to join because I didn't know what I was going to get. I hoped I would get some really cool stuff. And I, I absolutely did. I was just really, and, and all of the people. So, so in a typical issue, I invite several artists to be the featured artists and they answer questions that I have asked them. And then I solicit for articles um, that could be like tutorials or just a story about a, an experience with art journaling. And then we have our galleries that all have different themes. And so that first time, you know, it was a little nerve wracking because, of course, you put out the call for submissions and people have to work on their stuff. And like me, everybody waits until the last minute. So the last minute came. I'm like, okay, I don't have enough, guys. We're going to have to fill the magazine with the cat. Well, I extended the deadline. And then I ended up getting plenty for that first magazine. And I decided to do a pre-sale just so that I wouldn't know how many to order because I was having to put out and pay for the print right away. And so I, based on that pre-order, I placed my order and then it was still what 2021 at the time, December, they were still having lots of delays and backlogs with paper supply and with, um, they were busy. So the magazine ended up being, I think about two weeks later than I expected, but it, it all worked out. And I sold out all of the extra copies within about a day wow. of announcing it. So then I had to place another order and I very quickly sold out of those. How did you feel when that happened? I was like thrilled and, you know, but, but even the numbers at the time. So, so I ordered, I think the first time I ordered 200 copies and, and that seemed like, no, I, I didn't even do a hundred, 200. I think I did 150 or 170. And that seemed like an awful lot. I really didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what my audience expected either, what my readership thought. So I didn't know if people would go, oh, only 200 or wow, 200. And so I'm tending more towards the wow, 200, because it was the first time it was, you know, we're we're a part of your audience. Wow, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're the wow audience. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> So, so that was the first one. And then of course, you know, like, like the saying goes, the reward for a good a job well done is another job. So I had to start all over. That's an interesting point, actually. So you, you had this idea, then you executed it and you had your wow moment with the amount of orders that you got. And then you had to do it again. And how did you feel then? Was it like, oh yes, of course, like I'm pumped for the second issue or how, how was that for you? For the second issue, I really was pumped. I was even more excited about it than the first one. And I am really, I'm really proud of how that one turned out as well. I mean, I'm proud of all of them and I think they're just going to keep getting better and better. 
but you know, I knew I'd done it. I knew I'd had gotten a lot of interest and I was hoping that, you know, let's go, let's, let's do this again. When I got to the actual physical part of putting it together, it was like, oh, wow, now I have to do this again. <laughs> because it does take a lot of, of that mental energy to lay it out. The only thing I don't do by myself is the copy editing. I enjoy copy editing, but she's better at it because she does it every day. She's very good at her job in terms of respecting the author's voice. And also, I think because she has absolutely no emotional attachment to any of it, she is better able, I think, because I'm the one that has solicited and I'm talking to all these collaborators and I just feel I'm closer to them than she is. And I think we have that kind of like collaborator energy. I'm more likely to censor myself, censor a lot of what I do. And when Iris edits an episode, when you hear me sound a little bit more stupid than I actually am, that's probably when Iris is editing. <laughs> but no, she's definitely gentler on myself. And I think she has a similar experience. I feel that everything she says is super valuable, not just because I'm in love with her, but because it is. And we have this thing where we're more likely to edit the episode that we're doing better for the person, the other person in the conversation. Yeah. And it sounds like yeah. a similar, similar kind of collaboration between yeah, you two. Definitely. Hmm. And and the, the other thing that I think has been a kind of an eye-opening experience for me is having to choose. For the first issue, I put absolutely everything in that I got. And I and I have not done that completely as the issues have gone on, but I, I have had to to tell some people no, and that is incredibly hard for me. And I was not expecting it to be as difficult as it is. Then the other thing I have trouble with is that I've asked for about four to six photos per article. And sometimes I get like 10 or 12 photos. Like I don't have room for all of these pictures and I want to use absolutely all of them. And so in those cases, I send them to my sister and say, Deborah, you choose. And I let her help me choose. Oh, that's so totally me. Somebody would ask for six photos and I would send 12. And it's not because I want all of them to be in. It's because I have like low self-confidence in what's actually good. And I expect the person who's editing to be like, that's crap. That's good. And that's why like I do it. But it's so <laughs> interesting because I never thought about it that the person who's actually viewing my photos might feel not overwhelmed, but slightly overwhelmed that, oh my, I want to put all 12 in. But I just asked you for six, you know? Yeah, I find I, I do because usually I am judging them as a person who wants to like what I see. I've had a lot of artwork that is uncomfortable and I still love it and I want to put it in because I think that's part of what I'm trying to do is challenge people on, on what makes good art. And sometimes it's not always pretty. So kind of my, my general, I don't even know what the word is, motto, theme, guiding force, my vision, maybe my whatever is that everybody has a story to tell. And I want to be able to tell those stories. So if you've taken the step to send me something with your story, I'm pretty inclined to publish it. So you feel like people trust you with the things that they're sending you. So you're kind of like, like a custodian almost. I feel like I'm more of a custodian than a gatekeeper. I, I think about that a lot. Some of the stories that I've been trusted to tell have been pretty dark and deep. And so it's been very heartwarming that people are willing to, to trust me with that. Do you have any kind of like emotional obstacles, like struggles within yourself rather than practical obstacles of like learning this program or that? So, yes, I totally get in my way all the time. 
Um, I've, I've still got a lot of imposter syndrome surrounding who am I to be doing this? The other big struggle I have is that marketing is not a strong suit. And so I am not growing it as I would like to be growing. Um, and I know it all down to I'm not reaching my audience. And I know that there are things I could do to reach my audience, but I keep getting in my way. I keep making a list saying, okay, today we're going to learn how to do XYZ, or we're going to film a whole bunch of reels, or we're going to, and then I don't, because it just seems so hard. And some of that comes back to, I think, like my age, my generation, I'm very solidly a Gen Xer. And so to me, a lot of the promotional stuff I see online, it feels very forced and very like sellout kind of. And I I can't do some of that. It just is not who I am. And I have not yet figured out how to market myself in the magazine in a really authentic way. I'm a millennial. We established this in some other episode. (laughs) I feel that when I see online marketing, I feel like it's very like grift centric to use that word. It feels like a grift. Yes. And it also feels like it doesn't have substance. And authenticity is definitely the word here. And people sell to people. um, Oh my God. God, I can't believe I say that. My boss used to say it all the time and I wanted to just punch him out. (laughs) But I'm saying it now. But people sell to people. And sometimes I don't see people in what I'm watching. I see an algorithm or I see somebody else that has told you what to do. Iris, I feel you have a really good handle at coming across as authentic because you are being authentic in the, I won't say marketing, but the videos that you make, which is a part of marketing in some sense, even though it is you expressing yourself. What is it that gets you? Is Are you just inclined that way? It's basically that I don't feel capable of doing anything else. So I have the same thing that what you're saying about like, oh, you feel like you should like crack it somehow. And then also what you're both saying about authenticity. And I know what I'm not seeing in the way that I'm being marketed to. And at first, when I first started getting into like wanting to be more professional with my art and actually reach people rather than just do things just for myself, um, I um, was much more tuned into like what I was being marketed to for myself as in like what was being marketed at myself Um, and Mm -hmm. a lot of it was like you know how to get 10,000 followers how to you know make money how to like have a two-day working week sitting by the pool sipping margaritas (laughs) that kind of stuff and all of the ways in which these things were marketed at me and the language that was being used felt very icky to me. It was all promising lots, making it sound as it was all down to me. And then I would follow these courses and I'd be like, well, it's not really working for me. I actually probably already know what I'm supposed to do. I just need to go and do it. Um, But I wasn't really being helped by these people who were talking the very slick talk. And I think that sometimes when we see a lot of things, like when we see stuff repeated all the time, we think like, oh, we should be like that. Like, oh, the slick marketing talk is um, what allows these people to be a success. So now I need to adopt the slick marketing talk or I need to adopt the uh, like the woo woo uh, talk. Like I don't say that to put people down, but like as in like the very spiritual, you know, in touch with things type of talking. 
And I tried that too. And it's like, oh my God, that's so not me. And it's about finding your own authentic voice. And I do feel quite strongly that my own authentic voice is not something that markets super well. However, what that does mean is that the small, tight-knit audience that I have created is very genuine and is very supportive. And although it's not thousands or tens of thousands, it's very, very meaningful. And I think that um, it's a trade-off and it's very difficult to kind of say like, okay, yes, I'm going to be okay with that because part of us, you know, we want the big numbers. But um, a person who I feel does this really well is Effie Wild. Um, she has a successful business that is based around her being super authentically herself, having a very, in terms of numbers, a fairly small, tight-knit community. And it is perfect. Like it's a perfect synergy. So rather than her becoming like like sandpapering off her uh, uniqueness and edges as if she were to, to be smooth and palatable, she is just unapologetically herself, attracts the right type of people and makes a successful business that way. And I find that super inspiring. And that allows me to be more myself and to be less kind of feeling like I have to be some kind of slick marketing machine and just trust a little bit more like the right people are with me and the right people will come. And then I will also try and spend a little bit of time and effort in putting myself out there to get more of those people. But systematic, it is not. It's just me doing vlogs <laughs> and not brushing my hair and hoping that the right people see it. But when you do it that way, when the message hits, it hits hard because like you said, it's hitting the right people. Another thing I want to say about some slick marketing, all the slick marketing people who are listening, <clears throat> that like don't also buy. It's not just about buying their language, but it's about buying what they tell you. And I realized that I was so convinced at one point that I needed over this many followers to be successful in this art community because we do want to be successful. Come on. And uh, like... Bread costs money, yo. So when when I realized that, oh, it was some famous whatever mail that I was getting every five days. Oh, how to grow, how to grow, how to grow. It just broke such a chain for me. And I was then able to actually go and get those opportunities that I needed to actually do what I needed to do. That number was keeping me away. So it just like really become super aware of it. Um, I don't know how we got started. It's probably me. I derailed the conversation. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, I thought that was a great. And I, I, I especially appreciate what Iris said, because I think there's, you know, I, I have gotten caught up in the, well, I, I need to try to do some more of the slick marketing stuff, which I don't want to do. So I haven't been doing it. And I need to continue to go back to thinking about how can I do it authentically, be me, put the magazine out, because I have accepted that my magazine is not for everyone. We are pretty unapologetically um, liberal, perhaps is the right word. I believe pretty strongly in human rights issues. You communist. <laughs> Sorry, on the mood. <laughs> I know that by saying it's an inclusive community, it kind of then ends up excluding some people who find that uncomfortable. And and I am, I am okay with that. I mean, it makes me weird to say that because I'm absolutely a people pleaser, but I'm also, I also know that you cannot please everyone. And so I need to make sure that I'm trying to attract the people that I want to attract, which also will then repel the ones who just, it's not for them and that's okay. Yeah. 
It's about what you value in the moment. Yes. If you value in the moment those rights that you believe to be true, that what what the constitution actually stands for, um, yes. which is people need to have like human rights for everyone. Let's just let's just call it that. And when you value that more than hurting somebody by being inclusive, then you're you're going to fall the other way. And and I hear you on that. And I your your yeah. voice does come across as accepting and en- encompassing. And it doesn't, obviously it wouldn't make Iris and I feel excluded, but <laughs> it makes me feel um, safe to hear a voice like that because it means that I can be a part of it too. Yeah. Thank you. I'm glad to hear you say that. I feel that too. And I, f- I-, I feel that when I um, had a look at obviously like what you're inviting for submissions and ha- yeah. you did a an issue about, was Protest it about mental art. health? No, I I said protest art because I got so excited. But if she said oh. mental health, I'm so sorry. Oh, but I think so. So no, issue number three was about activism and art. Oh yeah, activism. And so yeah. so and so that was that was I think a really risky thing for me to have done, and I am glad I did it. I learned a lot, and we got some really amazing submissions. I I do think it turned it turned some people off, but like I said, I can't please everyone. I need to please myself. I need to be putting out the product and sharing the voices that I'm okay with. I mean, we we very specifically when we started, I had a guest editor for that issue. We spent a lot of time talking about, you know, what are we going to put out for submissions? How are we going to frame this? Because I wanted to make sure, you know, up until then, I had been publishing everything people had sent me. I was wondering if I would be in the position where I was going to have to decide whether or not I was going to put in a piece that celebrated Donald Trump. And I was not going to be willing to do that. That was going, that's like a hard line in the sand for me. Um, But what we did in framing our submissions request was say, focus on ideas, not people. So what you won't know is I saw that the reason I remember that issue is I went and I did like a whole lot of prep and research because we have awesome like protest art here. And I wanted to showcase like Polish graffiti and protest art. But when I was doing it, it became such an emotional process that I wasn't sure if like it was about self-immolation and Nepal and, and everything. Unfortunately, it will always be political because it's activism and protesting. Mm-hmm. And I got so deep into it and so emotional that eventually I said, I'm, I'm too close to this. It's going to be too emotional from my side. But you really mm-hmm. like, first of all, you got me out of the house. <laughs> but uh, second of all, you gave me like a real, a real good, Im- like, there's a little part of me that's still a freedom fighter uh, because I come from South Africa and freedom fighting mm-hmm. is a part of who we are and what we do. And it really sparked something in me. And I've actually done some like political activism pieces since then, and I'm not comfortable sharing them as yet, but that was like really super inspiring. And that's why when Ira said that, I like jumped to it because yeah. I thought she made the same. No, you are right. That is the issue that I was thinking of. It was the one that made me think when I saw your call for submissions for that, it made me it gave me a really good um, kind of, I don't know, a sense of what you're here for, what you're trying to call in, what you're trying to like uh, be in the world. And it felt very, very positive and very exciting to me because I do think that, you know, I shy away from making political statements and stuff because it is so difficult online. It's so divisive. And yet I think it is so, it's so important that we do stand up for what we believe in, but 
in a kind of in a holding space kind of way rather than mm-hmm. in a this is my opinion death to everybody else who thinks something different <laughs> not like that but in a way that invites um introspection in a way that invites communication or dialogue and i do think that when we make art and we share art and especially art that comes out of feeling or oppression or about like working through things and specifically art that has to do with activism, I feel like that is an invitation to um, reflect, connect, create uh, meaningful dialogue. And so the fact that you went there and you invited that and you said, hey, I'm doing a whole issue about that. I feel like that's that's just, that's really awesome because there's it would have been so easy for you to not have done that. So yeah. Right. Yes, it was hard. And I I even procrastinated on it because it was so hard, but it, it did help that I had a guest editor um, who had a lot more experience as an activist and as as a think as someone who thinks about activism. So that really helped a lot. She she really did a lot of the the heavy lifting in terms of helping to decide what our themes were going to be, which articles to choose, and we did have huge we have a lot of submissions and we did have to make choices because we just ran out of room and it it did feel risky but I I'm really proud of that issue I really feel like we we did some really cool things with it and there was some hard stuff in there um but I've I've had nothing but good feedback about it so I I I thank you I it, it really it makes me feel good to hear you guys have said several times that that the voice that I'm trying to put out in the world, the the expression of inclusivity and whatever, I, I'm glad to hear that you're reflecting that back to me because that you're you're hearing exactly where I'm coming from. Um, I try to always um, write with kindness, um, a little bit of humor, which is why I always refer to my cats because lots of humor. <laughs> yes, you're hilarious. I, I try to I try to make the magazine in the parts where I actually do the writing. I try to make it sound like we're having a conversation. Yeah, and also it's so genuine. It's so genuine. Like, that's why I really enjoy reading your little newsletters and your calls for submission and your, like, uh, reminder that a deadline is coming up. I'm like, (laughs) oh, that's, like, first of all, I'm grateful because I'm like, you know, obviously it just went out of my head and I'm like, oh, yeah, I want to do that. And then also, like, when you're, like, talking about the cat or about how you're feeling or whatever, it just feels like you're a real person. You're not just like some faceless entity. And I think that's really, that's really cool about, you know, obviously being involved. Yeah. Sally, Sally, Sammy and Hobbs. I'm not a stalker. (laughs) (laughs) So, so this morning I ran out for a couple minutes and I accidentally, well, I knew I was doing it, but I thought I was going to be back in five minutes and it was more like a half an hour because I stopped to chat. I left my studio open and um, Sammy found a spool of pearl cotton. And I don't know, you guys are probably, I don't know. Do you remember those family circus cartoons where Billy, they would show a picture of Billy and a map of everywhere he went as he was doing something. And so there'd be this dotted line that, that went all over the place and it would loop back on itself multiple times and there'd be a spiral that is what my house looked like when I got back. <laughs> there was thread around the table multiple times, around all the chairs. It was it went over to the piano and back. Oh my god! I I, I really love when you talk about your cat. So when I see like a like a cat cat text picture, and like Iris said, it makes you very relatable. But it's not just because you're trying to be relatable. I can read 
that you love these animals. I can read that they're in addition to your workspace and they probably really are your colleagues. And I, I just, I really enjoy those. And I, I'm not, I don't even have a cat. So uh, keep on sharing those. My my husband came in one day when I had one of the images up on my screen that I was going to use. And he's like, it was a picture of, I think it was of Sammy. And I looked at him and I said, I am not above using my cats to get attention. <laughs> <laughs> That's a marketing strategy I will stand yes. by. If somebody yeah, puts I really like this. cats on I like this marketing strategy as well. <laughs> A question I really want to ask, how do you know when something is finished? And I know that you do all the hard work of picking out people, and, and but at the yes. end of it all, when is the last full stop? The last full stop. Oh my gosh, that is an excellent, excellent question. Um, sometimes it's, the answer is when I have to stop, <laughs> partly, <laughs> that, that the time has run out and I can't keep going any longer. Let me back up a step. So the, the process is I submit, I, I solicit, I get the articles and everything and we edit it and then I actually lay it out in the program on the page and then I have to decide what order everything goes into and then I put it on my iPad into like um, Goodreader and I start editing it and so that's going through page by page, word by word, looking for mistakes, looking for little places where I have to move pictures around. Um, places where I could add a little background or whatever. I also have um, my mom and my sister go through it. And so they're also proof, my proofreaders. Um, they're just, you know, because it gets to a point where I can't see the errors anymore. And so after the three of us have made at least one pass, I will probably make one more pass. And that's the point where I'm like, I can't see it anymore. And so at that point is when I upload it to my printer. So that's the point where I have to proof it on screen make sure all of the edges are out to the edge like they're supposed to be. And I, I don't know. It's just that it gets to a point where I'm like, okay, my time is running out. I've been through it enough times that I can't look at it anymore. It has to be done now. I, I'm not sure that's a very satisfying answer. <laughs> um, well, it's a little bit inspiring, it, actually. It's like you it, say, it, you, it, have to, you have to let it go at a certain point. You have to let it go. I've pointed out errors in the magazine, in the paper magazine on Instagram, and everybody's like, oh, it's okay, it's okay. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not pointing it out because I'm mad about it. I'm pointing it out because I think it's hilarious um, because I know that I was never going to catch all of those errors. It has been over a year, and just within the last month, I happened to open up the very first issue and found an error on like page three. I am a perfectionist or a recovering perfectionist, but I have somehow been able to expect that I have to let it go because otherwise it's never going to happen. So otherwise it wouldn't exist. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and especially when I've had people pre-order it. And so I'm sitting on all of their money and they're asking me, when's it going to be out? Well, I, you know, I need to move on. The, the, the funniest error that I have found in that first issue is that um, I misspelled the word strawberry. <laughs> <laughs> that is excellent. That is, that's yes. really good. Like if, yeah. there, if, if you could choose to make any error, that is actually like that's for comic effect, that is yeah. the best one. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> One of the, the the things that helped me understand perfectionism in in terms of trying to strive for for stuff that other people do is when I was a quilter, a long arm quilter. Um, you know, you'd see pictures, but you weren't up close to them, and you'd see all this work, beautiful, beautiful work by by these 
famous. I mean, they were famous in our small quilting community, but these were like the people who were winning awards. And so I would go to the quilt show and I'd get up close to these quilts and I'd look at their quilting up close and I'm like, that's what my quilting looks like. I can see their errors. I can see their individual stitches. That's what my work looks like. And they're okay with putting it out here and they're winning awards with it. So I guess I really have no excuse because there's nothing special or, you know, unique about them. They, except for the fact that they took the effort and the leap to submit it. Yeah. Um, that's such a good point. Yeah. I love that. So, and that's where I, um, I try to encourage people and, and I, I know I won't ever get through to everybody that, that thinks this, but I don't want anybody ever to self-select out of submitting to Strawberry Moon Magazine. And I know that there are people that have, um, they're like, oh, I'm not good enough. Or, you know, they'll flip through and, oh, my art doesn't look like this. Or, oh, my art isn't as good as this. I'm like, have you looked at that art though? I bet your art is as good as this. So you've talked a lot about this kind of uh, practical creative process of putting together this magazine. And it leads me to wonder about, um, you must spend a lot of time at a computer, you must spend a lot of time putting together this magazine, but do you still have time and or do you still create time for your own creativity? And, and like, how does that work for you? I absolutely do have a pretty full creative practice. It ebbs and flows just like everything. Right now I'm at a little bit of a low spot. My computer desk is also my art desk. So I am const I'm surrounded by all of my stuff all the time. Um, I also knit in the evening. So I'm even if I never actually touch a paintbrush or a pen, I'm always knitting in the evening, you know, doing something creative. I just want to say, Suzanne, thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast. It's been so interesting talking to you. I have, um, you know, it's like, it's kind of selfish. It's, I just just invite you on our podcast so I get to like pick your brain and ask all the questions that I want to know. <laughs> and I'm like doing it under the guise of like, this is for our listeners. Um, but yeah, no, it was yeah, just always an agenda. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very honored to be asked I I like I, I think I said in my original reply like I'm terrified but also excited so yeah and I love that because it's so genuine you're yeah. very welcome and thank you so much for making the time to come and talk to us and I really hope that people have enjoyed it um Tamara are you, do you want to say something yeah I want to ask Suzanne Suzanne, I heard you have a really cool magazine and a cool Instagram with art. Where could I find you? You can find me at strawberrymoon.art is the website. And Instagram, my handle is strawberrymoonmag. I think that's right. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll fact to check this and put it in the show notes. <laughs> Um, you will definitely be able to find all of Suzanne's details in the show notes, uh, correct details. And uh, you can find her there, uh, buy one of the magazines, not just because I told you to, but because it is such a beautiful tactile experience as well. Um, it has the best velvety covers you want to wear it. I'd also like to say thank you to all our listeners who tuned in today. We'd like to remind you that you can follow this podcast on your preferred platform. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review or rating. You can also mail us 
at notarealartistpodcast at gmail.com with any of your questions, insights, or just to say hi. And don't forget to stick around for the key takeaways. One, as much as we are privileged to be artists in this world, the world is also privileged that we choose to pursue and create art within it. Two, the energy required to do tasks with little to few dependencies is very different from the energy required to create. Accepting that can help you create ease around the ideas of productivity. Three, if you find yourself thinking, somebody should create or do X, then perhaps you should be the person to do it. Four, collaboration with another person in your art practice or process can mean a better product, as they have less emotional attachment to what you create, look or sound like. Five, Authenticity in social media helps our viewers and others create realistic ideas about our lives and process. 6. People sell to people. Often, you can tell when marketing is based on algorithm chasing. It feels like a grift. 7. Small, tight-knit audiences often feel genuine and more supportive. You don't have to chase a big number to have a successful business or form meaningful connections. 8. Always ask, who is selling me this idea? Because once you get past the false ideas around what they're trying to sell you, you will be able to focus your energy on getting the actual opportunities you need. 9. The idea of inclusivity can be alienating to some people. Sometimes this is uncomfortable. It is all about what you value in the moment, being inclusive or alienating those that find inclusivity threatening. You cannot please everyone, although you can certainly try. 10. Work is perhaps never finished, but at some point you have to let it go. If you don't let it go, it can never live out there. 11. There is nothing special about other people's work versus yours. At close-up, it's all the same stitches or brush strokes. What makes the difference is that they put it out there. So today, we encourage you to take the leap. Welcome to Not A Real Artist, a podcast by me, Tamara Sagadevan. And me, Iris Fritchie-Cousins. Really, uh, I, 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 just, I just miss said my own last name, so let's do it again. 